Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Tina Sire, PCA Chief Impact Officer. Molly Fletcher attended Michigan State University where she earned a bachelor's degree in communications while competing in tennis. Formerly, as president of client representation for sports and entertainment agency, CSE, Molly spent two decades as one of the world's only female sports agents. She recruited and represented hundreds of sports' biggest names, including Hall of Fame pitcher John Smoltz, PGA Tour golfer Matt Kuchar, broadcaster Aaron Andrews, and basketball championship coaches Tom Izzo and Doc Rivers. As she successfully negotiated over $5 million in contracts and built lasting relationships, she also observed and adopted the traits of those at the top of their game. Molly is the author of three books, A Winner's Guide to Negotiating, The Business of Being the Best, and The Five Best Tools to Find Your Dream Career. In 2010, she founded the Molly Fletcher Company, where as CEO, she travels the country as a sought-after keynote speaker and team-building facilitator. Molly now lives in Atlanta with her husband and three daughters. Molly, thanks so much for joining me in the PCA audience today. It's awesome to be with you. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm hoping that we can kick off by having you share uh, a little bit about your experience with sports um, before you went to college. And, you know, I know you went on to play um, really competitive tennis at Michigan State, but what came before that for you on the sports scene? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I swam and I played basketball and I played tennis. And then when I got to high school, they were all at the same time. They were all in the fall. Oh, and I was a freshman. Yeah. I was a, yeah, it was a bummer. And, and I, you know, and I, and I loved them all pretty equally. And, and, but I had just sort of started playing tennis. I didn't really start playing tennis until I was about 13, which is, you know, pretty late in some regards. And, and, um, and so I sort of had been sort of newly in love with it. So I, pursued that and and um you know and then that continued to be kind of my sport and and I'm super grateful for it but I was able to play a lot of different sports um all through and then locked in in high school on on one so what was it about tennis you know knowing that you started maybe a little bit later than even some of these other sports how did you come to choose tennis well you know I feel so fortunate cuz I have parents who exposed me to lots of different sports and, and let me really drive that. And, and they certainly would have, I could have come home and said, I want to play basketball and they would have gone awesome. And I could have come home and said, I want to swim. And they would have said, awesome. And that was, you know, wonderful that I had that kind of freedom, I think in many ways. And I, and I try to do that as a mother now, but, but I, you know, I, um, I, I loved, I, I certainly am a team minded person, but I also love the ability to sort of have to be that person on the court it was a part of a bigger team, but, but had to sort of deliver and had to execute. And, and, um, you know, and it was, and I was new to it and I, I just fell in love with it and I still love the game. And it's, it's the one place that I feel like I can go. And, and I used to say this to my mom, you know, I could be in any city, um, good, bad, tough neighborhood, great neighborhood. But if you put me on a tennis court, I felt so safe. And so at home, and um, it's a sport that I'm grateful for. It, it gave me a platform that, that, that changed my life completely. So that's why I'm so passionate about sports and kids and, and what it can do for us if we explore it and experience it in the right ways. Yeah. So um, over all those years, I love the idea that on any um, court you feel safe. 
Um, were there any tennis coaches that really stand out in your memory as ones who are just like the kind of coach you'd want for your kids today? And, and what was it about those coaches that you think made them so exceptional? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I mean, so I grew up playing tennis with a wonderful coach, Sue Selke, and she was really great. And Todd Martin, who played professional tennis for years, and he and I went to high school together, switched over to a coach, um, Rick Furman, who was uh, went on to be a leader at the USTA and, and is a great man. And, you know, he was – he had this style about him where I knew he wanted the best for us and I knew he cared about us and I knew – he cared about doing things the right way and, and being sincere and authentic and giving it everything you have. Um, but he had the ability to be tough on us, but it was coming from a place that even at 13 or 14, I knew was from a place of love and, and support. So because I knew that it was from a place of love and support, I, he had sort of the permission, if you will, to be tough, you know, and I remember walking into practice one day and my shirt was untucked and he looked at me and he goes, you look sloppy. And he said, you're going to play sloppy. And I said, no, sir. And he said, well, then tuck your shirt in. And, you know, he did stuff like that. I walked into a tournament once and, you know, I was unseated and I drove to Detroit. I grew up in East Lansing and I drove to Detroit and I walked in and I looked up at the draw and I, and, and before I could even see anything, I saw, I mean, right when I saw it, I saw I was playing the number one seed and Rick came up behind me and he goes, you know what? He said, I know this girl. And he said, she's playing the number one seed. And I turned around and he goes, and you know what I want? And I said, what? And he said, I just want that girl to leave her guts on that tennis court. And uh, I said, you got it, man. And I went out there and I lost, but I gave it everything I had. And, and it taught me, you know, lots of lessons. He taught me lots of lessons. I'm super grateful for that. That's a great story. Um, so where, where Rick is concerned, you talk about like this ability for him to be tough, but having it come from a place of love. What did he do as a coach um, to sort of build, like to show you that he, you know, it, even though he was tough, it was coming from a place of love. Were there specific things like a foundation he built or how did he get to that place? Because I'm imagining that couldn't just sort of happen overnight. Mm-hmm. You know, he was consistent. Um, he did what he said and he said what he did. He, he was always honest, you know, and he coached us to do the same thing. I mean, you know, you'd go out and play somebody and, and they might call a ball close and Rick would always tell us, you know, you know, you do the right thing all the time. And, and he taught me a lot about character and, yeah. you know, which, which, which is incredibly important because all that rolls up into the way that we do what we do in life later. Right. And, you know, so, so, you know, he knew when to put his arm around you and he knew when to grind you and, and tell you to get after it. You know, he knew when to make you run laps. He knew when to let you go get a glass of water. And I, and I think it, it was probably um, a, a bit of a gut thing on his part, but you know, it's like Pat Summit used to say, nobody knows or nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, to me, she's an example of somebody that, that did it all right. And I think Rick was a little bit like her in the sense that he could be intense and he could be tough and he could make you be your best version of yourself. Um, but he, but he, but you knew that he had your back. One of my coaches was Tom, one of my clients was Tom Izzo. You know, Izzo does that incredibly well too. And has that ability to earn the right to, to sort of hold his players accountable. Um, and, and, you know, he does it in a way. I mean, one of the things that, that Tom does that, that some of your listeners may dig hearing and, and is, is he pulls all his players in at the beginning of the year and he gives them a three-by-five card. And 
puts them all in the film room and he says, listen, I want you to write down what you want out of the season. You know, what does success look like this season for you? And he gets all kinds of stuff back on these three by five cars from seniors and freshmen. And he, you know, he gets, I want to win a big 10 championship. I want to win a national championship. I want to graduate an all American. I want to graduate above a 3.0, whatever it is. He gets all this mm-hmm. stuff and he gets it all on the cards and, and then he pulls them all into his office one by one and, and he sits with them and he says, so, you know, um, you, you, you want this, right? You want to win the big tent. Yep, I do. And he said, okay. And you want to win a national? Yep, I do. And you want to graduate three point? Yep, I do. And he said, okay, cool. So if I'm your coach, then would my role in that, as far as you're concerned, be to hold you accountable against these, these goals? And they said, oh yeah, coach, absolutely. And he's like, okay, cool. So if I find out that you skipped a class and you want to graduate and, you know, with a 3.0 and most kids to have a 3.0 or above are going to class. You want me to call you out? Yeah, coach. Okay. And so if we're up by 10 and there's two minutes to go and you're dogging it down the court, you want me to get on you about that? And hold you? Yeah, coach. So he earns the writing, earns the permission to hold his players accountable, but he does yeah. it with their permission and from a place of love and it, and it works remarkably well. Yeah. So he's setting that foundation and sort of asking for permission um, based on their own goals. I love that. That's a really cool insight, and I want to talk to you some more about some of the folks you've represented. So, so tell us a little bit about your path um, from Michigan State to to becoming. I think CNN nicknamed you the female Jerry Maguire, um, but to, to to becoming an agent and getting to work with people like Tom Izzo and Doc Rivers. Um, how did you get there um, from Michigan State? I'm I'm sure people would love to hear that story. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun story. So I graduated, you know, and I and I had I wanted to be in the business of sports, but I wanted to move to somewhere where I felt like there was a lot of opportunity to do that. And so I taught tennis all summer in Michigan and saved about two thousand bucks. And I took my two grand at the end of the summer after teaching tennis and drove to Atlanta to try to find a job. The Super Bowl was coming to Atlanta, the Olympics was coming, there was a bunch of stuff. So I said to my mom and dad, I'm going to try to go down there and find a job. And, of course, my parents were really close, but they thought, you know, well, this ought to be kind of interesting, you know, <laughs> and we'll see how long this lasts, honey. You know, and my, I'm backing out of the driveway, and my dad's like, don't even cry. Don't worry about it. She'll be back in two weeks. And so I get down to Atlanta, and I stayed on the floor of a friend of mine's apartment for a couple weeks. And then I learned that, and this is, again, the power of sport and the impact that it can have on people's lives I learned through a couple of relationships and contacts that I'd come to Atlanta with three or four names. I called them and that you could teach tennis for a reduced rate on your rent. So you could teach it in an apartment complex, like one night a week oh. work, you know, kind of during the day with a regular sort of job. And then you could teach tennis at night to the residents. And so I find out about this one apartment complex that the manager didn't know yet, but the tennis pro was leaving. And so a tennis pro buddy of mine said, who my coach actually from college introduced me to. Um, he said, you know, the pro here is leaving, but I don't think that the manager knows yet. So I said, well, where is this apartment complex, man? I've got 2000 bucks. You know, I'm going to be eating grapes walking <laughs> through the grocery store in a minute. He said, yeah, yeah, no, this is where it is. So I get in my car, I drive over to this property and I said, gosh, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I played, I taught, I said, I see you have a court. Do you use that court to teach, you know, to the residents here? And she said, oh yeah, we do. We have a great tennis coach. He's amazing. Everybody loves him. He's been here for six years. She's going on and on about him. And I said, well, listen, if anything changes with him, you know, let me know. And I, of course, knew uh, it was. And, and I, yeah. I said, so here's my card and, you know, let me know. And so she, she, uh, I gave her my card and I laughed. And then, you know, long story short, I drove across the street and saw this pizza place and I, 
went in and asked the owner, I said, would you give me like 15, 23 pizzas a month to all the people that come to the tennis clinic? And I'd put a coupon from, from your pizza place into the newsletter. And he said, yeah, I'd love it. And I called my buddies at Wilson and I said, would you hook me up with free, you know, stuff from Wilson, sporting goods, tennis rackets, water bottles, whatever. Yeah, mom, no problem. So the next day I go back over there and, uh, you know, with, with kind of this pizza deal and, you know, these, this Wilson stuff that had come in and, and, uh, she said, you know, you're not going to believe this, but our tennis pro just came in here. He's leaving. We need a pro. Your timing's incredible. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, this is incredible. Right. So I, so I said, well, what's the deal? And she said, well, we take 500 bucks off his rent and the rent's 850 and he writes us a check for 350 on the first of the month. And I said, oh, okay, cool. And kind of began to negotiate with her and, and said, well, we got this pizza thing. And, you know, and she said, okay, this is great. I said, you know, it was Wilson stuff. And I said, what if we just wave it? And she said, well, what do you, what do you mean? I said, just wave it. I'll move in. You know, we can fill this place up. And so long story short, I lived in this apartment complex and taught tennis every Tuesday night for nine years for free. Oh and my God. I, it was a beautiful thing. And it was because of tennis and I'm so grateful for it. And I share that story only because when you get into sports marketing, oftentimes you don't make a lot of money. And so that situation gave me a platform to, go work for the Super Bowl host committee where I met lots of great people in Atlanta and, and um, you know, met some amazing people who helped me get into a small agency in Atlanta, CSE. And, and I worked there for about a month or two. I came in to do endorsement deals for like, you know, Chuck Daly, Lenny Wilkins, Mike Fratello, yeah. all these coaches, Smoltz, yeah. Doc Rivers, all these guys, and I was doing endorsement deals for them. And then I went into the CEO of the company, and I said, you know, gosh, there's all these baseball players in Atlanta. There's college coaches that all want to go to the NBA. I said, you know, there's golfers at Georgia Tech coming out. The tour comes through Atlanta. And I said, why don't we go recruit some more of these players and build this client list up and negotiate more player contracts and coaching contracts? And he said, well, what do you, what do you, you know, what do you mean? And I put a business plan together, and he gave me the green light. And I'm thankful for that and and for him and. So over 15 years, I signed about 300 guys and, you know, negotiated about a half a billion dollars in contracts. And it, it was just awesome. And, and we, you know, we had, and the most important thing, candidly, is that we had really good people. I mean, guys like Smoltz and Kucher and people yeah. that were great at what they did, but they were good people, too. The kind of people you wanted to go to dinner with. And and, yeah. and that was great. Yeah. You know, one theme that I feel like is coming through in some of these stories is this idea that you don't get if you don't ask and, you know, that yep. you were brave enough to to talk to this person at your apartment and say, like, let's waive the rent and make your case. And, you know, look at all these business opportunities at CSE, like, let me go after them. Um, where did that mm-hmm. assertiveness come from, do you think? Were you born with that or did you learn it or, or where did you get that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think sports gave it to me for sure. I will say that. I think my parents were a part of that, no question. But, you know, kind of a cool story, and I've got a book coming out this spring on on being fearless and sort of stepping into these uncomfortable moments and and what that can do for us. But my coach, one time I I was standing a couple feet behind the baseline, and, and and I was like 13 or 14, and he pulled me up to the net, and he said, look, he said, you see that baseline right there? And I said, yeah, he said, behind it and I go yeah and he goes there's sharks <laughs> and I'm like 14 right I'm like really dude and he goes there's sharks and I'm like what, what are you doing and he goes yeah and if you step behind that line they'll eat you up you know you got to stay inside the baseline if he wanted me to take the ball on the rise and I said I said all right all right you know but you don't act don't treat me like I'm five dude no I didn't yeah. say that but I was sort of like, but it, you know it taught me that like 
you know, and then he would, you know, and then, you know, at times he would say, Molly, like when the ball's short, you don't run across the baseline to get it. You cut the angle off. Mm-hmm. And, and in a weird way, you know, all that stuff taught me that you got to go get it. You, you know, if the ball's short, you got to cut the angle off. You got to go to the ball. You can't stand yeah. at the baseline and wait for the ball to cart coming down. You got to step in and take it on the rise. And, yeah. and I think that became a bit of a metaphor for life for me that, it's the same thing. I mean, if you if you want to make it in Atlanta with two thousand bucks and no job, you got to cut the angle off. You got to figure that out. And, yeah. and and part of it is being comfortable, failing, staying curious, um, yeah. and and stepping into those scary moments and recognizing and saying to yourself, you know, what what's at risk to make this ask? You know, what's at risk if I get a no? And and the more you do it you know, the more you realize that, that, that no's really not that bad. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. And it's those little moments that all roll up into, into big moments. You know, it reminds me um, when we're talking to coaches, we talk a lot about um, creating an atmosphere where it's okay to make mistakes. And when you're trying yeah. new things and things you're not comfortable at, you got to create an environment where it's like, okay, I'm learning here. And if I'm not making mistakes, I'm not pushing myself hard enough I'm I'm curious if there are specific techniques that you could recommend to either coaches or parents to sort of help their kids um, step and take it on the rise, and like you know to to ha- bring that sort of fearlessness um, and the not not fear of um, you know making a mistake. What are some specific tangible things mm-hmm. that parents and coaches mm-hmm. can do um, with their kids on that front? Well, I mean, I think one thing is, you know, it, it, life to me is about fulfillment, not, not necessarily achievement. And, and so I think we've got to let our kids do it themselves. You know, I think the biggest thing that's hard is, is that oftentimes, you know, when I was a kid, I'd run down the street and play basketball and my parents weren't there. They didn't yeah. watch me. You know, my, I'd, yeah. you know, I'd go swimming by myself. I'd ride my bike to tennis and play. They weren't there to, to say, right. why are you switching to a one-handed backhand? You, you know, and we live in a world now where parents are at all this stuff. And so, right. Um, right. you know, so I think, um, you know, tactically it's, 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 it's letting them fail and succeed on their own because the more they have success with it, the more comfortable they will be doing it more. And, you know, I'll give you an example. And to me, it's looking at all these moments as practice for life, right? I mean, you, you know, and, and I know you guys put out the statistics, of the number of kids that are actually going to make a living doing this sport is so minute yep, that yep. I think as parents and coaches, we've got to step back and recognize that all this is at the end of the day for 99 out of a hundred of these kids or, you know, that are out there is all this is, is an opportunity for them to prepare for other things in life and right. other opportunities from a business perspective. And I think when we can take that shift in our minds and say, this isn't about winning or losing, this isn't about, you know, failing or succeed. This is about learning from each and every moment so that we're better when we're in a, in a, in an office in New York city and we're trying to go ask for a raise. It's having right. the courage. and the So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, my oldest daughter plays tennis and she's out on the court. She's six Oh five Oh. And the second she's beating this girl pretty handily. And I'm up, I'm up behind the court and, all of a sudden his father starts yelling at my daughter and the, oh. her opponent and saying to my, saying to my daughter, you're foot faulting every single point, you're foot faulting. And, and, um, and then every single time anything would happen, he would yell that ball was out or she's foot faulting and he was just being completely out of control. And, 
the lineup was there and everybody was there and they were trying to, and unfortunately this girl's daughter starts crying and my daughter sort of gets shaken up because this grown man is yelling at her. And so she starts crying and, and I stay back and I stay back and I don't do anything. And after the match, she wins, she closes it out. And then after the match, she's walking off the court. The man is still sort of yelling at her and she's saying, sir, can you please quit talking to me? So we get in and we get in the car and she said, you know, mom, thanks for not doing anything. Cause, and I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, I mean, you didn't come down to the court. You didn't yell at the man. You didn't try to get the lineup. You didn't. And, and yeah. she goes, I, I, I know that I was crying, but I had it. And to me, okay. in that moment, of course, the mommy, <laughs> you want to come out and, and, and fix it and protect her. Yeah. But what that all does, in my opinion, is it braces her and gives her the courage and the confidence in life moving forward to solve her own problems. And, and right. that's at the end of the day, what I, what I, what my husband and I want to, you know, what we want to create a platform for them to go do. So, um, yeah. you know, tactically, I think it's, 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 it's letting, you know, letting them win and lose on their own, letting them fail and succeed on their own, letting them recover on their own and, and being there as someone with just love and support. You know, I say, people say, well, why don't you coach your daughter in tennis? And I say, cause I got one shot to be a mom. I could coach a lot of people, but I can only be a mom to her. And I don't want to lose that shot. And I don't want to, you know, so, um, yeah. so anyway, that's great. Yeah. That, that story is so powerful. And, you know, as a, as a fellow parent, the idea of, of sitting there and not doing anything and letting your daughter be empowered that she could handle it and that you didn't need to dive mm-hmm. in and try to fix it. Um, that's a really mm-hmm. powerful story because I think a lot of us parents see things like that happening and it's really hard to not step in and want to do something about mm-hmm. it. Um, I well, want to go back. The, oh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, the, the platform that that creates is one, it gives me the courage and the strength the next time to know that I'm doing the right thing by staying out of it. And right. it gives her the courage and the strength and having practiced doing it on her own because there'll be more moments like that. And I'll yep. know she thanked me for staying out of it, so I'm going to stay out of it. And, um, you know, so that, yeah, it all builds on each other in pretty awesome ways. Yeah. I wanted to go back for a second to your time with CSE. And, you know, obviously you were um, pretty rare being a woman, being an agent. And um, were there, I've read a little bit that you felt like there may have been advantages um, to being a woman in that world that's so male dominated. And I was wondering if you could talk for a second about um, how you felt like being a woman might have actually helped you be even more successful in that role. Yeah. I mean, you know, so one of the things I tell women when I speak is, you know, it's, it, to me, it's about reframing so often these moments and recognizing all the positives that are in them. And, and, you know, so, you know, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, when I would be on the range at PGA tour events, people would sometimes go up to my players and sort of whisper, why is your wife standing behind your bag at a major event? You know, what's she doing here? And they'd go, no, 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 that's not my wife. That's my agent. Or, you know, I'm standing behind the dugout at, at baseball games and, and players would come over and managers would say, you know, cut it out, man. Quit flirting with her. Or comments wow. like that. And, um, and you know, and, and so you could get in those moments and, and get discouraged or frustrated or whatever. Or you could recognize, gosh, you know what? There's a platform here, for example, with baseball players. I often, you know, recruited the athletes, certainly, and built great relationships with them. But I also built great relationships with the wives and the parents and, and recognize that there's so many people that go into having an athlete succeed. 
you know, and if it's a young athlete, it's the parents certainly and, and their support. And, and if it's an older athlete who's married, it's the wife or the husband. And so, it, you know, there was a lot of things that I said I can do. And, and so, you know, what would happen over time is a, a player's wife would say, you know, you get traded to their husband, you get traded and you get on an airplane and you fly and, and you pitch the next day. And I'm standing here with three kids and a house and furniture and two cars and a nanny. And I got to get to this other city and I got to wow. find schools and I got to, I got to get there. And, and I, um, as much as I could get the player, you know, a, a new pair of blue spikes cause he was pitching two days later and they wore blue spikes, not black, like the team he played right. for. Yeah. I could also get on the phone with a wife and say, here we go. Here's the guy that's going to move the cars. Here's the guy that's going to move that, you know, or, wow. um, you know, or yeah. as they had children and I had children, the ability to connect with the wives. So I always believed that, you know, the, the, that the athlete's ability to stand on a mound and throw strikes or a golfer's ability to stand over a putt on Sunday and, and, and pay a mortgage sometimes in their lives was, there was a lot of other things in their lives. They're human beings and they have challenges yeah. too. And, so recognizing and supporting them beyond just what they do and supporting the wives and the family and the parents, that, that was equally as important to me. And so I think it's, it's, it's oftentimes about reframing it and recognizing the good and the way it makes you different and the benefit in that difference. But then I think you also have to have the courage to recognize, are there other gaps? And, and one thing I did discover as I grew the, the division was, gosh, you know, I don't really know what it's like to make $10,000 a year as a minor league baseball player and drive from Eugene, Oregon to Greenville to play a baseball game. You know, I don't know what that, I didn't do it. You know, I don't know what it's like to stand on the sideline and coach at a college. So I don't know what that feels like. I didn't do it. So, so I also put people around me that had done those things that could have different kinds of conversations than I could have. So we could serve our clients, you know, the best way possible. Yeah. You know, I think another issue you dealt with at the highest level is helping athletes in that transition to retiring and, you know, not playing their sport anymore. And even though it's at a totally different level, I think a lot of youth athletes and high school athletes, um, what they do as an athlete becomes such a huge part of their identity that when suddenly their, you know, high school football playing career is over and they're not going to play at the next level it can be really jarring um, not to have mm-hmm. that part of your identity in your life. And I, I'm wondering if there are some specific tips you could give um, to coaches and athletes, even if it's not at the highest level, about um, how to handle that transition and to be thoughtful about that transition before it happens. Yeah, you know, that that's why I love what you guys do so much. I mean, I, um, you know, I think it's about, you know, it's we're seeing it right now with the Olympics with Phelps. You know, he is so comfortable with what he's doing in his life and moving on to the next stage. And to me, yeah. you know, the one regret I have in the work that I did was that I didn't spend more time with my athletes getting clear on their overall purpose in life. You know, mm. what they did was they were a pitcher or what they did was they were a PGA Tour right. player. But what's your purpose? What's your why? Because this is going to end. And I think it's about saying, what is my true purpose in life? Not about necessarily the sport per se, but what's my why? What's my purpose? And I think when you see the peace in Phelps right now and his ability to really turn this on and, and move to this next section of his life, it's that he has real peace in his purpose being yep. more than just a swimmer. And so, you know, what I wish I had done more of that I didn't do enough of with my athletes was to have those conversations. I would have conversations like, 
look, you're not going to pitch forever. So let's start doing TV so that maybe you can do TV when you're done or right. whatever it might've been. But I, I wish I would have peeled yeah. that back and challenged them. And um, so I think it's about recognizing. And that again is where when we focus on just winning and losing, we, we, whatever level we're winning at, no matter how long it lasts and how many years it lasts, it's going to end and you're going to have a life without it. And so being bigger and more whole than just your sport by having a clear purpose beyond just that is, is, is paramount. Yeah. And, and so that's something that coaches and parents can talk to athletes about, um, which usually we're so focused on the performance um, and, and we don't take that time. It's really good to expand our scope and talk about the why. Um, I, I know we're coming to the end of our time, and there are a few more questions I wanted to sneak in here before we wrap up. Um, one of those, um, I was reading about some of the team-building work you do you know, with Fortune 500 companies and different teams and about this notion of building a winning team culture. And I'm curious, just when you go in to talk to, um, maybe it's a corporation, how do you define with them what is a winning team culture and, and what are some of those building blocks? And I know we could probably do a whole podcast just on that question, <laughs> um, but, but I'm curious about some of the big picture um, takeaways you try to leave those teams with about building a, a winning team culture. Well, yeah, I mean, gosh, you know, well, you know, number one, I think they, they know the answers. We just are sort of the facilitator in the process, right? So we spend a lot of time getting really clear on what does success look like for you and for your team and what kind of culture do you want? And, you know, they've, they've got to want it too, and they've got to want to own it. But, but so we get really clear in all of our kind of team build sessions that we do. We do them with a lot of big 10 SEC schools are all, um, you know, really tailored and customized based on the, based on the particular program and their gaps. You know, we had a school that we worked with where, um, you know, they, they had no seniors. And so they had a leadership challenge. And so we did an exercise around really getting clear on everybody's gifts. And what we helped them see is that there was such a diverse group of gifts on the team that, in fact, they had all the components to lead each other effectively, even though yeah. they didn't have the, the proverbial senior, right? Yeah. We do. Yeah. Um, so So that – to me, but I'm a big believer in kind of, you know, clarity and, and, and then accountability um, and having the athletes do that for one another and for each other. You know, every great coach, you, you know, you'll hear them talk about when they don't have a really strong captain to lean on, that can be very, very difficult on the coach. A coach needs a person or a few people um, usually that they can lean on that, that will step up and have the difficult conversations. I remember one time Izzo, it was, you know, I think it was uh, two days before the national championship game or something. And Mateen Cleaves, who was on the team and played for him, and they were close, was his captain. And he came into him and he said, Coach, these guys are smoked. He said, they're tired. He said, he went to his hotel room and he said, we, we don't need to practice tomorrow. We need a day to do something else. And he mm -hmm. recognized that. And, and, and Coach listened to him because they had that kind of connection and that kind of a relationship. Um, yep. So... You know, I think it's it, – it, it, so I guess I don't have a generic answer because teams are so unique and the individuals on them are all so unique. So we do lots of different interactive kind of exercises to help them understand, you know, number one, the uniqueness of the platform. You know, one of the things for college athletes to realize is that – or anybody on any team is that this is such a unique gift. I mean, you aren't going to go anywhere in life after sports at this level and have this kind of – connection and support 
I mean, you're going to have it hopefully in a corporate environment, but it's going to be different. I mean, the level of support yeah. that a you know volleyball team has and the, and the connection with each other is just powerful. So recognizing what a gift it is and how special it is and how to cherish yeah. it and how to leverage it and how to use it to win championships, you know, to recognize that it isn't about you, that, you know, all those kinds of things. But we do things, we help them get really clear on tactical things like, you know, the other day when we worked with the team, we talked about what do you want to, I mean, at the most basic level, what do you want to start doing as individuals? What do you want to stop doing? And what do you want to keep doing? And then what we had was we put these, and this would be cool for coaches to do, you know, so you put these sticky notes, huge, those sticky papers that are just really big and you put them on the wall and, and, um, and, and, and the whole team walks around and writes, on those, the things that they want that teammate to start doing, stop doing, and continue doing. And it's anonymous, right? Mm, but the mm-hmm. writing on each other's papers, what they want each other to start doing, stop doing, and continuing. And inevitably what happens is the athlete sees some um, consistencies in the reactions. They see, gosh, I had yeah. four people write, they want me to stop dogging it at practice. Or wow. I five yeah. people write, that I need to be more accountable for my mistakes, or I had 10 people write, believe in yourself because you're better than you think you are. They start to, so that there's lots of powerful exercises that, that can be done, whether it, whether it's, you know, my company or others supporting that process, but it's powerful and it's important. Certainly. Cool. Um, I'm going to sneak in one last question here. I was excited to see that you're a trustee um, for the boys and girls clubs of America and, um, you know, at Positive Coach Alliance, we believe so much in the importance of the after-school time and whether the kids yeah. are playing sports or going to the Boys and Girls Club, um, everything that can be gained out of that. And, and for a second there, I just wanted you to tell our, our audience a little bit about your work with them and why you're dedicating your time to that particular organization. Yeah, gal. I mean, you know, I tell you, I, I got um, involved with it because I, I was a Youth of the Year judge, so... I had the opportunity to judge um, the youth of the year selection. So every year boys and girls club selects one youth of the year um, that's recognized nationally. And so I sat in this room and 13 young people came in and they told their stories um, and they spoke and they sat in front of five executives and, and shared kind of their story of, of maybe why they felt like they should win youth of the year. And, and I literally at the end of the day looked at the other five executives and we all went, there's absolutely no way we can pick one. I mean, these children were, yeah. inc- these kids were incredible. I mean, the stories were just, you know, the, the experiences they'd had at home were oftentimes yeah. horrific. And then you would listen to the strength in their voice and their polish and their confidence. And it was incredible. Yeah. And um, so that, allowed me to dive in head first because I felt like, oh my gosh, if there's anything I can do. And I mean, you'd hear about a, a girl who all she wanted was stadium seats for her, her boys and girls club because parents, kids were, you know, they wanted to watch each other and they had nowhere right. to sit at the field Right. and they were yep. 5,000 bucks. And of course I oh. call a couple friends and clients and we get these stadium seats delivered and, and that's cool. That feels great. So wow. Yeah. Um, what boys and girls club? And I go and I speak um, in kind, you know, to um, you know organizations both big and small. And I, I just, um, you know, it, they're moving the needle with kids, and they're moving the needle in in communities, and they're moving the needle with with families. And and um, 
you know, they're changing lives. And, um, you know, uh, my mom was a speech pathologist in, in, um, you know, pretty tough area in Lansing. And she, you know, I think I always um, have valued um, community service. So I'm just yeah. grateful they let me on the board and I, and I feel like I, I um, helped them in a really small way, move the needle a little bit. So it's a special organization, no question. That's fantastic. Well, um, thank you, Molly, for spending the time with me today. And I think our PCA listeners are really going to enjoy um, hearing your stories and some of the advice and tips. And many people will benefit and want to wish you the best of luck with your new book. Um, is it entitled Fearlessness or what, what's the working title there? Yeah, we're still working on the title. It'll come out in March. And, you know, if people are interested, it's mollyfletcher.com is my website. and It'll all be on there. Great. But people will be able to pre-order probably by the end of the year. Fantastic. Well, best of luck with that and um, with your family in Atlanta, and really appreciate the time you took with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.